There is no equality or justice for the Mapuches. Here, there's only justice for the rich and powerful. This land recovery is a way to compensate for the damage they've done. Ada Huantako is an activist within the Mapuche Nation. Some would say it's in Chile, but Ada and other activists would say their land is its own territory, or at least that it's supposed to be. And that's the whole problem. The Mapuche are indigenous people, and Chileans have encroached further and further into their lands for decades. The Mapuche Nation says that theft has handicapped their community and exploited their lands in a way that hurts both the environment and Mapuche rights. The conflict has become more violent than ever before. Desperate Mapuche have gone on hunger strikes and faced tear gas over and over again at protests. Armed Mapuches have burned industrial property or shot Chileans they believe infringe on their rights. There have been about 30 attacks every month. It feels like 160 years of frustration have hit a peak, but the path to de-escalation is muddy and fraught. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Mapuche grievances rarely make the news even within Chile, much less in the international media. And that's why Al Jazeera's correspondent Lucia Newman was so determined to tell the world about it. I got a chance to speak with her soon after she returned from her reporting trip. Recently, you went to Ara... Araucania. Araucania. The Araucania region. So why did you go to Araucania this September? I went because I was seeing and reading that what has been a brewing conflict was really exploding. And I felt that it was long overdue to go there and try to figure out what was really going on and spend more than just a couple of days there as I had in the past. This time I was there much longer. Because you were there for a while, you talked to so many people for your reporting on this. It's quite astonishing. So there was one story from your pieces that really stood out. It's pretty horrifying. You met a young man. Can you talk to me about your conversation with him? Yes. The story of Brandon Enriquez Wentecol is exactly the sort of thing that is happening there, which doesn't make certainly the international news very much, but it really sheds light on why there is so much resentment and anger and sometimes violence in that part of Chile right now on the part of Mapuches. Brandon's story takes place in the neighborhood where he grew up, one that is home to Mapuches and non-Mapuches. One day, uh, a group of special police erupted into their community. They were chasing two other young Mapuche men who had allegedly committed some kind of a crime. And as that happened, Brandon's younger brother, who was only 13 at the time, was on his bicycle and was pedaling past the special police forces. When I saw his photograph, he looked like a little kid. I mean, really a skinny little kid. One of the policemen threw the bicycle on the ground, grabbed the brother, threw him on the floor and put a pistol up to his head. Brandon was only 17 and was watching this from the window of the house and came running out and screamed at the police, let him go, let him go, he hasn't done anything. And when he did that, the policeman grabbed him, threw him on the floor, hit him, first of all, with the back of his rifle, 
and and beat him up and immobilized him completely, face down to the to the dirt street where they were, and suddenly he was shot in the back by the um, pellet gun that the policeman had. But these weren't rubber pellets; they were 180 metal pellets that went straight into his hip and his back, and he started to bleed to death right then and there. I remember him telling me that before he lost consciousness, he realized that the dogs from his house came running out and started licking his blood and his wound off the floor. And he noticed he had a hole. I could see the hole leaking blood, like when you kill an animal. I fainted. When he woke up again, it was I think it was like two weeks later, and he had had 17 operations. My goodness. Can you imagine? The government even paid for the clinic initially, but they weren't able to take out the majority of the pellets, and so he still has something like 130 lead pellets in his body, which keep intoxicating him because lead is 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 uh, absolutely toxic. And uh, his mother Ada, whom you heard earlier, she was formerly an evangelical, very, very meek, mild, quiet woman who had no interest whatsoever in following the Mapuche cause or fighting for it. She always said that she was brought up, and so were her children, to respect the police and the Chilean institutions. She thought all the rest of the people that were making noise in the community were rebel rousers. Until this happened to them. And now uh, she has become a very outspoken activist. As Mapuche, we need to have thick skin to resist all of the humiliation, the persecutions, the bullets, the incarcerations from the state, this institution that are on the basis of only lies, farce, and injustice. I say injustice because my son was unjustly shot by this institution. They tried to take the policeman, the culprit, as they call him, to court. After everything they did, he is still free, and he's still a policeman, and he's still getting paid his salary. They did find him guilty of a minor offense. But it didn't mean that he spent a single day in prison or even under house arrest. Brandon was shot four years ago, but as Lucia said, he'll never fully recover. She told us the lead in his body even puts him at a higher risk for cancer, and it's these kinds of incidents that have the Mapuche so angry. They've been dealing with militarized police, high surveillance, and theft of their lands for 160 years. The Mapuches are. Among the original inhabitants of what today is known as Chile, and from roughly the middle of Chile all the way to the south, that was dominated for hundreds and hundreds of years, long before the Spanish arrived, by the Mapuche. They've always been known as fierce warriors. Way, way, way back, they were the only ones that were able to stop the Inca Empire from expanding. Into the south of this country, and the Spanish couldn't exterminate them either. So the Spanish Empire, they arrived at an agreement with them, and they managed to basically coexist together quite well. But then came the Chilean independence. Chile declared independence from Spain in 1810. At first, the Chilean state had agreed to allow the Mapuches 
to live in the South. But then there came a time when Thea decided it needed to expand. And so that was called the occupation or the pacification of the Araucanía region that started in 1860. The state forced Mapuches off their land despite promises it had made earlier. It gave them official land rights for the areas they were allowed to keep, but... Guess what? These, these titles were never respected. The owners or the holders of these lands, the Mapuches, were deceived, uh, killed, they were thrown off through various means. They were put into reservations that became smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, so that now, at this point, you've got all Mapuche communities living on one and a half acres or three acres. And this is no small demographic. About 12.5% of people in Chile identify as Mapuche. That's almost the same as the proportion of African Americans in the United States. These are people of the land. The name Mapuche means people of the land. And uh, they have no land. And so being without land is like not having a heart for them. So this is a fight that has been in the making for many, many years. It seems to have culminated now into property that's being burned and factions of the Mapuche being blamed. Can you talk to me about what we're seeing today? We're seeing a revival of the Mapuche that is uh, taking place on many, many levels. And some of it you could call violent. There is a movement to gain territorial control. Because since the return of democracy to Chile, Mapuches were demanding that their territory, if not all of it, some of it, be returned to them. And since it wasn't, the younger generation especially, some of them have decided to take matters into their own hands and rebel. A lot of the rebellion this year has taken the form of arson. Some Mapuche have specifically targeted forestry companies because of how much Mapuche land they now own, and also because of the exhaustive way they use the land. Protesters have set fire to trees so they can't be used for capitalist gain. They've also burned the trucks that forestry companies use to transport their logs for export. And some Mapuches have also burned down vacation homes or small ranches owned by non-Mapuche Chileans. More and more of this land is being actually claimed or, or taken over, if you like, by the Mapuches. This is what they call territorial control. And so this is leading, of course, to a lot of confrontation. Confrontation with the militarized police that try to push them out. And more recently with um, Chileans who are taking up weapons to defend themselves. So you met with some of those Chileans, some who have lost their homes. Can you tell me about that? Well, we were in an area that has become the real hotbed of the conflict. And when we were in a place called Cañete, we had already seen that nearby in in Lake Lanaue, at least a dozen homes, vacation homes, had been burnt down. Lucia was able to verify that they'd been burned down by armed groups of Mapuche. In this area, a man called Delfin Saez, whose family's been in this area for now more than 100 years. He owns a supermarket in the town of La Cañete. And his supermarket had been burnt down. It was never confirmed who had done it, but there are a lot of suspicions, uh, about a year ago. And on the day we arrived there, we uh, met him and his house 
in the countryside that his grandfather had actually lived in had just been burnt down to the ground. It was still smoldering when, when he took us there to see it. I feel nostalgia, anger, knowing they burned down something that belonged to us nearly 100 years. We can't rebuild our memories, but I'm going to rebuild the house right here because no one can throw us off our land. I asked him, who did this? And he said, I can't say who did it. And then he sort of looked at me and, and recognized that most of his clients at the supermarket are Mapuche because it's an area of Mapuche. So he didn't want to blame anybody in particular. But he, of course, knew that this was an act of hostility by a, a more radical group of Mapuche, even though all the Mapuches clearly are not on that same page. But some are, and they're becoming more and more radical, or at least they're doing this more and more in that area to send the message that if people uh, don't give them what they want peacefully, they're going to take it themselves. Which is complicated. So how were the people you talked to dealing with that with the knowledge that the Mapuche have a claim, but that they also have a claim. Exactly. That is really the problem. What do you do? Can you turn the clock back 500 years? I mean, there are so many Chileans, and the Chilean state has always argued that the Mapuche are, is, are also Chileans. They say they're not. They say they're the Mapuche nation, and that uh, the Chileans are living in their land. And yes, we can coexist, many of them say, but under our our rules, our terms. So what is the Mapuche's relationship to the land? As I said, the name Mapuche means people of the land or of the earth. And their philosophy is not that you have to exploit the land for material profit. Rather, you coexist with the earth, with the air, with the water, with the rivers and the lakes and the sea. And you give to the land and the land gives back to you. So right now, they are considered to be almost like what you would call environmentalists. But what, once upon a time, they were considered quacks by a lot of people, radicals by others, and irrational, especially under the sort of the neoliberal economic model that predominates in many parts of the world, especially here in Chile. That's why when you look at the forestry companies, they're taking up every millimeter of this land and it's being destroyed little by little. It's sucking up the minerals of the earth, the water that's underneath it. And it's making it so that in a region of the country where there used to be tons of water, there's drought and, and not enough for people like the Mapuche to irrigate the little land that they have. So this clash of values of how to use the land has angered Mapuche. It's deepened their distrust of Chileans, and it's also affected the way Chileans view the indigenous community. They're often criticized by Chileans who say they're lazy. Look, you know, when, when, when we go there, we plant everything. We, we can export tons and tons of fruits from here. And look at them. They just have enough to, for subsistence farming. Well, that's how they, that's not because they're lazy. It's because it's what they believe in. Laziness is one negative stereotype that Chileans attribute to Mapuches, but it's not the only one. Lucia says this history of discrimination is as old as the land conflict itself. This is something that goes back a long, long time. It goes back to, to the Spanish conquistadors and then to the uh, formation of the Chilean Republic, where they were treated as inferiors in school. 
They were discriminated for their color. They were forbidden from uh, speaking their language. Up until 10 years ago, 20 years ago, a lot of Mapuche children who went to school were beaten for speaking in Mapuche. Mapugundun, it's called, the language. They had rags stuffed in their mouths to keep them from speaking it. So all these things, the way they dressed, the way they spoke, the food they ate, all those things were ridiculed. And the typical thing you hear in Chile, oh, the Mapuches are lazy, they're drunks, and they're thieves. That's what a lot of Chileans are brought up hearing. And that's just the prejudices that people, that a lot of people have in parts of Chile where they don't really live with Mapuches or coexist with them on a day-to-day basis. It's striking how similar the characterizations or the mischaracterizations of indigenous peoples are no matter where they are in the world. Because that's some of the same rhetoric you'd hear in the United States about the Native Americans, which is just really something. Yes, that's very true. I, I, uh, this isn't unique. I really got an eye-opener when I spoke to a man called Hugo Gallegos. He is a Chilean. He's blonde, blue-eyed, of German descent. Uh, runs a museum in the city of Angola, history museum. And he was started to gather all these documents that showed when migrants were brought by the Chilean state in the 1860s, they were given free land. Free land that was originally Mapuche land. And I saw the documents from France, from Germany, from England, from many, many countries. And they would say, if you come to Chile, you will get 30 acres, you will get two cows, two oxen, six kilos of nails. It was fascinating. It was all spelled out what they would get. Anyway, he started to become a huge advocate for the rights of Mapuches. And I said, well, did you always feel this way? And he said, absolutely not. Before all this, before I read these documents and saw the history, I thought that the Mapuche should be exterminated. That The only good Mapuche was a dead Mapuche. And I was shocked that he actually admitted that. And I said, do other people think like you? He says, yes, absolutely. A lot of my neighbors, even till this day. Now, Hugo's story makes one thing very clear. A lot of Chileans have these skewed opinions of the Mapuche nation because they've never learned about its history or its grievances. In September, Mapuche leaders called Lancos and spiritual leaders called Machis met with representatives of the Chilean state for a historic meeting in Araucanía. They sat down to discuss the growing violence in the area and the Mapuche grievances behind it. Meanwhile, other Mapuches who were boycotting the meeting protested right outside. They were pushed away by uh, riot police with water cannon and tear gas. They kept coming back, calling Mapuches uh, in the meeting, traitors, and saying that they'd sold out. It was a big deal, but no national media covered the story. In fact, Lucia says she was the only reporter at the talks. We were the only ones that were allowed in there to watch and listen to the whole thing. These were the Longos and Machis of about 15 different Mapuche communities. More of them wanted to come, but the other group blocked the roads and didn't allow them to. But anyway, this was with representatives of the three powers of the state, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. The president himself sent a message via Zoom, basically saying that this was a historic moment. Muy buenos días. Quiero agradecer muy sinceramente esta invitación a participar en este diálogo 
conversación en el Walmart. The Longos and Machis uh, talked about how they had been discriminated, exterminated, tortured, how even to this day the Chilean state has militarized their region and how their children live in fear, and also about their their very, very real concerns that if this continues, there could be uh, a lot more bloodshed and chaos. Basically, they talked about how the survival of their very existence is at stake. Now, has anything come out of it? It's a very slow process. What about when it comes to a local level? Are there initiatives in schools or community groups to tackle some of these problems that you mentioned? There certainly are. The Mapuches are being much, much more active in local schools. And in some places, they're teaching the Mapuche language. And the Chilean children have to learn it too, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> it's a difficult language, by the way. I met a woman, Onesima Lienkeo, who is working precisely in that field. And in part, she began because she was seeing that a lot of the children of Mapuches uh, in many communities where this violence is taking place were being, in her words, terrorized and traumatized by what was going on. And at the same time, feeling victimized by Chileans and the lack of respect that they were afforded was making them perhaps turn to depression, drugs, violence, etc. We saw very young children who were in rural schools who then faced a lot of discrimination when they went into urban spaces. So that's why we decided to work within the school, to help them strengthen their sense of cultural identity so they could stand in a place and feel Mapuche, love their diversity, and feel empowered instead of vulnerable in this situation prone to discrimination. So she started working with, with young people very early on, and now this has spread to just schools in general. And I think that this is a very interesting phenomena, that you're seeing kids learning their language, dressing with their Mapuche clothes the way they used to before. They were ridiculed. Now a lot of people are wearing Mapuche jewelry, the girls, their ponchos, headdresses, etc. And they wear it day to day now, and it's accepted in the region. And this is a kind of like an empowerment that is taking place, which I had never seen before. I've been to the Araucanía over the years, and I've never seen anything like this. They're really owning up to their identity, to their heritage, to their uh, religion, their beliefs, and very openly now. And this, uh, the more that they do this, I think, the more we're going to see the possibility of understanding. Lucia Newman, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this and to share your reporting with us. I appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbe with me, Malika Bilal, Oniwo Hacha, Nagin Oliai, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Nay Alvarez, and Amy Walters. Natalia Aldana manages our Twitter and Instagram accounts. We're at AJ The Take. Alex Roldan is the show's sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.